The Book Nook on WYSO was presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Wright Memorial Public Library, Clark County Public Library, Tip City Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, and Washington Centerville Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program today, George Pelicanos. Hello, George. Hey, Vic. George, uh, are you in uh, Maryland? I am. I'm in Silver Spring, my home. All right. You've got a new story collection. It's called Owning Up, uh, and it's always a, a big deal to me when you have a new book out because uh, it doesn't happen that often anymore. Well, I've been... Uh, I've been busy with television and movies, and um, it, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that can do a lot of different things at once. I have to compartmentalize. So, um, and uh, but the strike, uh, the writer strike, gave me the opportunity to to do a bunch of uh, prose writing and and finish some stuff that I had started, and and that's how it all came together. Oh. Your problem was an opportunity. I took it as that, yeah. Yeah. What were you working on when the strike happened? Well, I had, fin- I, I had finished a show called We Own the City, um, set in Baltimore, about um, uh, the Gun Trace Task Force, which was um, a, a squad of police officers that got sent up to prison. And, um, and that was on HBO. And then I started developing couple other things for HBO and I'm still that I'm still writing and developing mm. um, it just takes it takes time sure and um, so but I had these things you know I had one thing that I'd started as a novel as a full-length novel and I and I put it away and um, that's the uh, the uh, novella it's called Knickerbocker uh-huh. sort of a historical historical novel and uh, I had written one chapter and I, you know, I thought the chapter was pretty good, but I didn't know if I could sustain it and, and, and for an entire novel. And then I went, I, as I often do, I go back into my files and I, and I find a bunch of research I did that, that never did never came to fruition. So I had a lot of material. And, and in that particular case, there were some interviews with my mom who has still since passed away. Um, and I thought, you know, I better finish that because to honor my mother and, and, uh, she was, um, she was born in 1923. The novella takes place between 1919 and 1923, but, you know, she was in that sort of pre-depression childhood, which is part of the story. And it's also right after all the unrest in Washington, D.C. Uh, that took place under uh, President Woodrow Wilson. That's correct. There was there were riots and lynchings that whole summer. It was called Red Summer, actually. But in Washington, the difference was is that um, black people fought back. It, it was it was more of a it was more of a race war than it was a race riot. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, there were people killed on both sides and it lasted three or four days. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it came about, there was tension after World War II. There's a lot of um, uh, 
black men fought in World War World War One, excuse me, um, and 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 fought well in France and elsewhere. And when they came back, uh, you know, they came back to a society that was not just indifferent to them, but was turning more and more in the direction of segregation and Jim Crow. And under Wilson, he, um, the federal government was a place where in Washington, where blacks and whites could work together and blacks had opportunities to go into management and that kind of thing. He segregated the government when he came into office and, and it was a big step back for people. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was, a lot of um, servicemen who were hanging around in Washington who didn't have jobs. They'd gotten out of the war. And there was a lot of tension, and that's what precipitated the riots. Um, and then the story ends with the Knickerbocker Theater disaster of 1923, which was the biggest natural disaster in Washington history. It's uh, um, the, the collapse of the roof of the Knickerbocker Theater, which uh, claimed just under 100 lives. And that's the third story in George's new collection, Owning Up. It's called The Knickerbocker. And I had never actually heard of this disaster until I read your story. And it was a situation where they had all that snow on the roof, and these people are watching a movie, and suddenly it's a horror. Yeah, and the way the, the reason it's a part of the story is that on that night, uh, there was, I, I dug up some historical articles and, and people got together that night, black and white Washington got together that night to, to put in an effort to, to save the, the survivors. And, and this one, um, this one black guy that they interviewed said, uh, we weren't, we weren't black Washingtonians or white Washingtonians that night. We were all Washingtonians. Mm -hmm. And Robert Charles Weathers, what a great character. He's elderly. We have this oral historian talking to him, and uh, he's like, "You better bring chocolate." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. He, I could just see this guy, this old guy, sitting in the chair, and that's the highlight of his day. You know, having a little bit of time. Uh huh. Let's talk about the first story. It's called "The Amusement Machine," and. Mm -hmm. It starts off, we've got a couple guys in uh, jail, and one of them's quite unusual, Ira Rubin, because he's white. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've been going to the D.C. jail for many years. I do reading programs there. And, um, and, and I get, and, you know, so just so people don't think I'm, I'm sounding like some kind of uh, altruist or something, I get a lot of material on those visits, you know, just talking to the guys and, and, and listening to the voices and so on. But there was this one day I was in there and, and a white guy was in the, uh, in the audience in the reading group and, you know, wearing an orange jumpsuit. And it's very rare to see that. And it's not because, it's not because uh, white people don't commit crimes. It's that the judges generally don't put white uh, criminals into that environment. They just, they give them a break basically. So, I was curious, and uh, of course, there was just then a story developed in my head, and um, and I created this character who was not a violent criminal, but was a uh, was a paper hanger. He cut he kited checks, and he's a repeat offender. He can't get out of his way, and he meets a guy named Gerard Williams in there, who um, 
is waiting trial on a gun charge. And he didn't, he was in a car with her, uh, got pulled over and a gun was found. It wasn't his, he didn't even know the gun was in the car, but it had shaved numbers. And when, you know, when you get a, when you find a gun with shaved numbers, serial numbers, that is, you're looking at five years in prison. So these guys meet and then uh, Gerard Williams is trying to be an actor. And when they get out, they meet again on a film set. And um, of course, Gerard just wants to be an actor. He's trying to go straight. But Ira Rubin rubs him into something that uh, because Ira Rubin can't get out of his own way. And um, then gets involved in some conflict. Um, so that's probably the most Elmore Leonard-esque uh, story I've written in a long while. Um, it takes its cue from that kind of unlikely uh, bond. And uh, you're a big fan of Elmore's. Absolutely. Mm. I, I reread him more than any other author, I think, just for inspiration. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, my guest is George Pelicanos. His new story collection is Owning Up. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, fact-based journalism in service of democracy. In that first story, The Amusement Machine, all these stories have a lot of hard, hard-won wisdom in them. And I love this bit about they, they say they bought the building, and uh, the the look is that, well, cash isn't real. The stock market isn't real. Only dirt is real. <laughs> that's why they call it real estate. <laughs> it's the only thing that's real. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's spoken by his Jewish father who, you know, it, all – our ethnic groups, Greeks, Italians, Jews, you know, we, when our parents, when they had these little businesses, many of them, they bought the, they bought the building. That's how they built wealth. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the business. The business uh, very rarely generated profit, but it was the, it was the dirt that the business was sitting on. And they were smart enough to do it to see these immigrants. Mm-hmm. And the second story, the no knock. This is uh, torn right out of the headlines. Yep. It's about a no-knock warrant and and what happens to a family um, over the years who was torn apart by it. Um, And um, uh, it's, you know, there's there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of press about this, uh, especially with the case of Breonna Taylor, but it's, it's a it's a problem uh, that's national and and the problem that I see is that a lot of um, innocent people get caught up in these in these uh, no knock warrants and and not just citizens are killed but police officers are killed too. There's been a lot of fatalities with police, especially in uh, stand your ground states, which. Ironically, they, a lot of those states, these, these stand-your-ground states, are now outlawing no-knock no warrants for that very reason. Mm. Because if somebody invades your house and you shoot them, you have legal grounds in those states to, um, to dispute the fact that you, you're guilty of uh, murder or manslaughter. And, but the other thing is that if you look at the statistics, the, the these raids don't work. They, they very rarely turn up 
large amounts of drugs or guns or anything like that, usually they find, you know, they might find some drugs of better personal use. They might find a gun. But many times the person that they're looking for is, isn't even there. Mm-hmm. And there's no recourse for the homeowner. Uh, they, they'll, they'll do thousands of dollars worth of damage. And, and then the, um, the psychological damage is, is, um, is extensive. And that's what this story is about, is what happens to this family. Because the, the guy they're looking for isn't even there. And they traumatize the people that are there, and um, and the father eventually can't handle it. And they know that the father, Joe Caruso, is a crime novelist, and, and they actually give him a hard time about that while they're doing the no knock. Yeah, well, it's it's not a secret that, and I'm not going to elaborate too much, but it's not a secret that this is this is something that happened to my family. Oh. And um, and my son committed a crime, and I'll, I'll probably repeat that in this interview because I never say he made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Committed a crime, mm-hmm. but he wasn't home, and uh, the police invaded my house. They uh, everything that's everything in this, in the novella that takes place in the first, I guess, fifteen pages, is exactly as it happened. And then after that is fictionalized, it's dramatized. But the actual raid is is uh, written as it happened. All the details are exact. Our first thought wasn't about they destroyed my house or they were pointing pointing guns at my wife and my 12-year-old daughter and they did this, they did that. No, our first thought is what are we going to do for our son? Uh-huh. How are we going to how are we going to help our son? Um, uh, prevent him from going to prison mm. because he committed a felony. Wow. And and that's what my focus was on, and that's what the focus, uh, that's what my wife's focus was on. And and I'm not, even though, you know, I'm going to get hate mail anyway, but I'm not against the police. I've got a lot of, um, I, I have a lot of uh, uh, relationships with police officers and friendships and so on. I'm against the mission. I just don't think they should be conducting these kind of paramilitary uh, raids on citizens' houses. I just don't think it works. Mm-hmm. And you describe uh, this one character as just a cog in a rotten wheel. Yeah, that's the way I feel about it. I don't blame. I don't blame those those guys that those SWAT guys that raided my house. They're like. It's like they're in the military. If the guy, if the lieutenant comes down to the tent and says, "We're going down there to take the village today," that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You just follow orders. Gotcha. The uh, fourth story, the the title story, owning up. I think this one's probably my favorite because I connected so much with your character Nikos, and I'm wondering, is he a little bit like you? A lot, a lot like me. This. That story is probably the most autobiographical thing I've ever done. Um, and, um, you know, that was that was my life in the 70s as a teenager. I had a job in a, a appliance store, stereos and appliances. And 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 I did a lot of um, I did a lot of stupid things because boys do. You know, many boys do a lot of stupid things. 
I had friends that were completely straight, but I wasn't. And um, he gets into a, uh, a situation where he's with a bunch of guys and they break into an apartment for, for very little justification because they know a girl that uh, is dating an older guy who stole her records and they go to get her records back. But then one of the guys he's with um, is, is, a, is another level down on the rung. And he's, you know, he's a junkie and he's got a gun and he's, he attempts to rob a convenience store that day. And, you know, when you're, when you're a teenager, a certain kind of teenage boy that I was, things escalate, you know, you don't even want them to, but they just do. And, um, and then I set that against the, uh, again, it's a historical story because it's set against the, uh, Hanafi Muslim siege that happened in Washington in 1977. Mm. They took over the district building and the B'nai B'rith headquarters, and they held the city hostage for a couple of days. Everything shut down. The federal government shut down. But the point of setting it like that is that he's got a girlfriend who, uh, you know, he's a senior in high school. He's got a girlfriend whose father works at B'nai B'rith, and she's one. Of, he's one of the hostages, and he sort of thoughtlessly forgets about it that day because he wants to do his own thing and have fun. And then you, and then the story progresses to the present where he's actually thinking about his life and, and sort of, uh, uh, owning up as the title says, owning up to the, his past transgressions and looking at the, uh, at the evolution of his soul. And I think that's really the thread that kind of combines that connects all these stories is a look back at, um, you know, what you've done and, and how you've evolved. And the question that we think we're going to ask throughout our lives is what happens when we die. But when we get to the point where we realize it's, it's more about the greatest mystery being the passage of time. When we look in the mirror, we go, what happened to that young person that's supposed to be looking back at me? <laughs> Well, you, I think you're around the same age I am. I, I uh-huh. think you're in the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't you feel preoccupied with that often? Well, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, like any sane person is afraid to die, but I'm not uh, obsessed with that. I'm more obsessed with uh, what happened. You know what I mean? I blink my eyes and here I am, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Such a mystery. Yeah, it's the it's the biggest mystery of life. It really is, and I think what I really liked about that story was that that final story owning up. You mentioned he's a senior in high school, and he's inspired by you in many ways by your experiences. And I remember being a junior, a senior in high school, and getting swept up, and and going out with some older people like Ed. And having them do stupid things, and I'm I'm with them. I'm a party to this, and I'm just kind of like, oh, gee, what are we doing? Uh, and, and then, Nikos, he loves the music of the period, and, and I'm guessing you probably saw a lot of the same bands he did. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, every all the bands that the concerts that are mentioned, I attended. You know, like I was just thinking today. Because I still love I love Leonard Skinner. I think it's a, a great band, and you know they call Aerosmith the American Stones. Well, that's that's wrong. I think Leonard Skinner are, are the American Stones, right? But I saw them open for the Who, 
when nobody really knew who they were. And, um, and they blew the who away. I mean, but it was, it was such an experience. You knew we were watching a band that was going to blow up big and they did that year. That was an MCA records bill for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Friends. Yeah. So, so you saw Sabbath and Uriah Heep and Blue Oyster Cult and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Yes and Led Zeppelin. You saw all those bands. Oh, yeah. I'm a Washingtonian, but we used to go up to uh, the Baltimore Civic Center, which is no longer there. And you could, I saw Zeppelin there on the uh, Houses of the Holy Tour, which is a big, big night for me. Um, but you could go up there and for like 10 or 15 bucks, you could see like four bands in a day and they, and they were big bands. It was Blue Oyster Cult, Montrose, all these groups. Um, and, uh, and, and I think I also talk about seeing the, the prog rock acts that always put you to sleep, you know, like they weren't bad on record, but you'd go to like a yes concert or ELP or something like that. And at some point after, after the weed wore off a little bit <laughs> and there's a, and there's a 20 minute drum solo, <laughs> your, your chin's in your chest. You know what I mean? Uh huh. <laughs> wow. Well, in, in 1972, a friend of mine, we got offered tickets to see the Rolling Stones and, and we were in Des Moines and the, the catch was they were playing in Knoxville, Tennessee with Stevie Wonder opening. And my friend said, if you can get here, I've got a ticket for you. So we hitchhiked to Knoxville and saw the Stones. It was an incredible concert. Stevie was fantastic. And the ticket price was $6. Well, I, I have a story about that because I saw him on that same tour. Uh -huh. my first. My first rock concert, it was at RFK Stadium, July 4th, 1972. And it was Stevie Wonder and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas open for, for the Stones. There was a little bit more money. It was 25 bucks. I still have the, I still have the stub, but it was general admission. So it was a crush. I mean, when, you, when they opened the gates, a lot of people were getting, getting hurt trying to get seats and this and that. And they tear-gassed the, uh, the concert from inside. So... You were fighting that the whole time. But one thing I do remember is, is that Stevie Wonder, was, who opened, was, was dancing up on stage. To show you how low-tech it was then, he danced right off the stage. <laughs> and, and some people in the audience that were up front there just, like, picked him up and put him back on the stage. And he kept dancing and singing. It was like an early mosh pit dive. <laughs> well, I don't think you meant it. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's amazing. Well, they had riots at almost all those stone shows. I think Knoxville was the first one where they didn't because they had so many cops. Oh, that's interesting. I know yeah. that you love your soul music, especially from that period. And so I was chatting with my engineer, Peter Hayes, and, and he knows that stuff way more than I do. And he goes, ask George if he's uh, familiar with Dyke and the Blazers and their song, We Got More Soul. Yeah, sure. I have it. I have it on a uh, compilation CD. They were a pretty big, pretty big uh, group. Uh, they, they had one or two hits, I think. Um, I get a lot of, I get a lot of um, deep soul stuff sent to me from people around the country because when I wrote that book, Hard, Hard Revolution, there was a lot of that in there. And, um, because Derek Strange was a, was a soul aficionado, um, uh, in particular Southern Soul, which is my favorite 
uh, brand of soul music, uh, R&B. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I still listen to it. You know, when uh, I, I love, I love rock, but if, if you're going to, if you're going to say, well, what are your desert island discs? And I've been thinking about it lately. They're most of, most of those would, would be R and B, you know, just as, as back to back, back to, uh, front to end records. I think they were the greatest records. I mean, I'm sitting in my office right now and I've got a huge, uh, print photograph of Curtis Mayfield hanging over my desk. Mm. Um, to, to me is, is my, he's my artistic hero mm-hmm. above all, of all writers, filmmakers, everybody, Curtis Mayfield. He's the one man. Yeah. Well, I think that's hard revolution. That's what we had you on for two, 2003. Wasn't it? That was, that was the book. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. yeah. Der- Derek strange. As you can tell from reading this book, I love, uh, history and and writing about things that I don't think people are really aware of. Mm-hmm. Well, you've certainly schooled me. I, I had never heard of that Knickerbocker fire, and I really hadn't heard that much about that siege in Washington, D.C., the Hanafi siege, so I learned from that as well. Didn't you also do some work with Michael Connolly on Bosch? I wrote one episode of uh, the first season, and I was um, in the writer's room for about a week up in New York. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was fun. I'm, I'm a, I mean, I'm friends with Mike. That's, that's no secret. But I also think he's probably, if you're talking about mystery novelists, I think he's the best modern mystery novelist writing in the world. Mm. You know, just, I, I've never read a book by him that I didn't, that I didn't enjoy. And he's written a lot of them. It was fun. We had him on back before he was famous, a long time ago, back in the 90s. And uh, former reporter, that we, they get good ones, the former reporters, uh, David Simon, right? And, uh, what happened with the Baltimore Sun? Man, that's scary. Yeah, Sinclair bought them, and they're, they're um, you know, far-right ideologues, so that's the end of that paper. Um, there's a there's a uh, electronic newspaper in Baltimore called the Baltimore Banner, that I subscribe to. And, and that's, they got a lot of the best journalists from the sun moved over there. So that's, that's the thing to read. If you're going to read something about Baltimore. Gotcha. Well, I love this book, George, and and I'm so glad you you put it out and and I'm absolutely tickled that you were willing to do another interview. Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Vic. Thanks, George. My guest has been George Pelicanos. His new one is owning up and, and uh, what are you working on these days? I have a couple of things uh, at HBO that I'm developing, and one of them's another uh, social justice thing set in Baltimore. So I'm hoping to get that going pretty soon. I guess I should mention, since we haven't, that you did a lot of work on The Wire. Yeah, all five years. I was a writer and producer. Um, and it's been over 20 years now. We started in 2002. Hard to believe. I love the story about how you met David Simon. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of unusual. We met at a we met at a uh, funeral, uh-huh. and uh, and we were going to uh, he he asked me to ride him to the to the uh, shiva, and that's when he offered me a job. Yeah, well, you're both Silver Spring guys, aren't you? Yeah, he grew up uh, about three miles from me, but a different a different kind of neighborhood. Uh-huh. 
Um, but yeah, we were, I, I didn't know. And we went to Maryland at the same time, university of Maryland, but I didn't know him there either. Um, he was involved in the, uh, in the Diamondback, the school newspaper. That was his thing. And my thing was, I was in my tribe were filmmakers, you know, that was my major uh, film production. And then I got out of it, you know, I would just leave campus and I'd go sell shoes at night. So I wasn't really active on campus like he was. I didn't meet him until many years later. Okay. Well, George, thanks again. Thank you. My guest has been George Pelicanos. The book is Owning Up. You heard about it in the book nook. Uh, my name is Vic McCunis.